0: It's been quite wonderful to see people talking to each other. There's something very uh, fresh and uh, engaging and powerful and just feeling the... um, the shared intentions manifesting and greeting each other, and just going by and hearing conversations, and, oh yes, when reactivity came up, here's how I worked with it. <laughs> you know it's, it's wonderful, it's very it's very touching. And um, we've been through uh, a very precious, obviously, sometimes challenging, sometimes. Amazing, sometimes amazingly challenging <laughs> uh, period. And there's something you know very dear. And again, a range of responses as we uh, come to the end of the uh, first half of the retreat. <laughs> we often say that the second half of the retreat begins tomorrow. It's actually related to what I want to talk about tonight. I saved for this uh, last evening talk a consideration of the most important possible spiritual topic whatsoever. You might wonder, is it love, wisdom, nirvana, balance, I think what's most important is how we bring the practice to the entirety of our lives. That's what I want to uh, explore. There is nothing more important. And we could address that through all of those other themes, but there's something actually very uh, powerful about considering how we will continue to practice in this uh, second half of the retreat in our in our daily lives, in in what comes next. I'm I'm very much inspired by the line of uh, one of the great Tibetan yogis named uh, Shabkar who lived most of his life in the 19th century. I think end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th and was sometimes known as the uh, second coming of uh, Milarepa, the great, uh, the great yogi. And he, he said, let your life and practice be one. So I want to explore that. And it's also uh, very important to know that in our practice there are these cycles where we sometimes are going more inside, sometimes going more outside. There are these rhythms of our practice, times when they're more challenged, times when there's more um, ease, times when there's more doubt, times when there's more confidence, times when we're quite at the depths, uh, at our edges of learning and times when there's more integration. And very important to know that there are these uh, cycles and that it's very natural. And particularly the process of a sustained uh, in-depth training followed by integration is extremely healthy. That doesn't mean easy, (laughs) but it's it's very, very helpful. I was very taken by the question that came up a few days ago in the hall, which is, I've seen through some of my old identities or some of my old limited identities, shall I say. And they are offering uh, guidelines I don't want to follow so much anymore, but how will I be guided? How will I be oriented if the old isn't working in the same way? It's a great question, isn't it? Not an easy one. And I want to follow that, uh, that question somewhat really for the rest of the talk and um, look at a few ways that we can be uh, oriented. And to know that the, um, the transition between the time when the old doesn't work in the same way, and we might say that the new way of being is firmly established, uh, can be challenging. There can be uh, some disorientation or confusion or fear do we simply uh, take on another identity? I am now a Buddhist meditator. And might we sometimes grasp onto that just as much as the old identities? Um, Heather and I work quite a bit in retreats on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind. And in those retreats and in the learning associated with looking into what we call the judgmental mind, there is a kind of similar transition where we often can locate what we might call old uh, core beliefs that are not serving us at the present time, maybe I'm not okay, or I have to be on guard, or I can't be myself and receive love, or if I'm really myself, people will scream. (laughs) A little bit overstated, but you know what I'm talking about. And as we see more into those, what, um, what process can guide us? And I want to just mention it, just briefly a few ways that in that work that we have found some ways to work in these kind of transitional times. Um, one is to really keep connecting a lot with the kind heart in the transitions. And this is very much suitable for the next week, the next two weeks, the immediate future, in a time where there's more vulnerability to really connect with the kind heart, concretely meaning uh, keep the meta-practice going or whatever of the heart practices really uh, work for you. Just to hold the process as much as possible with kindness, really, really crucial, and compassion. To keep uh, the processes of grounding occurring, connecting with the body, the qigong perhaps, or yoga or both, the connecting with the earth, very crucial in th- these kind of challenging transitional times where we're moving from the old to we might, what we might call the new. Continually identifying and being able to be clear about the old voices like in that Mary Oliver poem that I read uh, about 28 days ago, <laughs> you know, where it talked about really uh, noticing the old voices. We want to really become uh, experts on our old voices. So much so that we can notice them really quickly and say, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> Something like that right? Really, really crucial. And then we start to have a sense of where we're going. Sometimes there may be some qualities. We may move from a core belief of I'm, I'm not enough to a sense of my basic nature is that of kindness. Simple as that. Or... I am guided by wisdom and compassion. Or whatever it might be. And sometimes we find, uh, find those senses in our practice. Sometimes we might um, find them guiding us, very emerging very naturally as to what can hold this new uh, growth, this new development. Some image some dream, some vision, some phrase. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. So, I want to say a little bit more about this process of uh, orienting ourselves, both uh, in general as we move into, for most of us, move into daily life practice, and also in terms of this uh, orientation as we move, in a sense, from the old to the new. I want to talk first a little bit more about how we place ourselves in this uh, archetypal journey uh, that I named in that uh, first talk. How How do we see where we are now in terms of that archetypal journey? And then secondly, to point to another main way to hold this new way of being which is um, expressed in many traditions as a connecting of inner transformation and offerings to the world. I want to talk about that particularly as it manifests in the Buddhist sense of the Bodhisattva. And then lastly I want to give some further uh, tips and uh, Suggestions and collected um, learning about what works in daily life practice, particularly what we might call advanced daily life practice. Okay, so I'll explain that when I get there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we can remember some of the uh, stages of that archetypal journey. And again, uh, in, in some ways, there's a linear aspect to the journey. In other ways, we're encountering all these stages all the time. So you remember we, we looked at uh, what I named as the first stage was the way we take things for granted, that we are simply caught up in what we might call the ordinary and habitual mind. Of course, that's happening all the time. Some of us may have noticed the habitual mind make an appearance or two this afternoon. And, <laughs> and, and the second was uh, having some sense of the um, limits or the unsatisfactoriness of the uh, ordinary and habitual. Sometimes coming with suffering that sort of pokes a hole in our conditioning. The third stage I named was that of the call, hearing the call for going more deeply, looking more closely, living in a different way. The fourth was the departure from the ordinary and habitual. The fifth was actually what is really a a, a long process of our own practice, purification, learning, being with challenges, and in many ways, that's, uh, that really isn't the name for our practice. But there are also times, and this was the sixth stage, when there are awakenings, where there are insights. You know, Heather's talk really helpfully pointed out ways that we could actually see that our insights, our awakenings, don't have to be of the dramatic kind, necessarily. Uh, they can be very, very crucial and important, and not be sort of then I was transformed into a being of light and transported to another galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And then the last stage is one I wanted to focus on. That's the uh, stage of return. And that's very much a sense of I've developed certain insights and I'm returning, I'm returning to my, my everyday life. I'm returning from that more intensive time of uh, what John was calling seeking or searching or opening up. And so I think it's quite important to have a sense, maybe, of some of what those insights and learnings have been. Yeah. Just to reflect some. People will do this in different ways. For some people, it can be really helpful, even maybe tomorrow morning, if, you, if this appeals to you, to take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and do a little bit of writing about what you sense you've seen. You know, maybe you've done that today. Maybe you've discovered that in conversation, just to have a sense of what some of the gifts are. They may have come in understandings and visions and seeing old patterns more clearly. Uh, They may have come in dreams. There may be uh, energy that's there that uh, doesn't even have a name necessarily. Some sense of vision. There may be a sense of really uh, uh, a deeper sense of vocation or one's life purpose. Um, this sense of being uh, guided is, can be very, very helpful. You know, What are my next steps? Well, how do I practice today? I think I mentioned earlier that I, I go down um, once or twice a day to the bench that we uh, uh, got from my father down in the lower courtyard. And... Uh, there's a bench that we have that has a, a plaque with his name. And I, I sit there and I, um, I talk to him and he gives me guidance, you know. And it's great. It's like, it's really, um, it works. You know, I'm not, I don't need to analyze like what's going on. But, uh, you know, like so, yesterday the guidance was very simple. Trust yourself Stay with the radiance. Stay with your body. Kind of the guidance for the day. Very nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and today it was, you got it, keep going. Which is probably, I, both of those, feel free to uh, receive those, you know, and, and work with them yourselves. So we find, you know, we find ways to uh, have these little guides for practice, you know, in And it's done in many, many traditions where we have like one-liners that give us some guidance. And we can get them from our own experience or we get them from books. You know, in the Thai forest tradition, I think it was mentioned, uh, uh, a Chan Semedo might invite that larger sense of awareness by just following the guideline trust in awareness. And let that phrase uh, land There's a poem, uh, kind of a poem that, that I like to repeat that uh, comes from Tibetan tradition from Dagpo Natashi Namgyal from the 16th century, which I often uh, repeat to myself just to invoke something. It goes like this. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining, like a flame, lucid, like a crystal. So we find those those insights and the that that kind of guidance. It's part of what happens with the return. But and then there also can be that uh, confusion or disorientation. And for me, it's, it was, it's always been interesting that there was some of that in some way with the Buddha. Remember, we've heard the story, I think, from, from Heather, that uh, after his awakening, he came back. He was really, as it were, hanging out in his own understanding, And he contemplated the world and said, well, the world, this generation, is in a tangle. If I taught, others would not understand me. And this would be wearying and troublesome for me. And I've always wondered about that passage. I didn't think of fully awakened beings worrying about things being troublesome and wearying. But, But there it is. There was some... There was some, um, some sense, even there, let's call it some uncertainty about how to proceed. Maybe some disorientation. How do I proceed after this awakening? You know, even for the Buddha, there was something like that. You know? And again, we can see that at times. Uh, it may be appearing sometimes now, or it might appear in the next week. You know, um, What is my basic motivation? You know, how do I relate to the job that I remember I, I used to have, <laughs> and still have? <laughs> you know, How do I relate to that? Or how do I relate to my arrangement or where I live, you know, and um, how do I want to live? It can, it can, the return can be challenging, you know, or I might think, you know, I thought the old voices would be gone and they're back, and we have to be patient. You know, we have to be patient. The old voices, uh, particularly the strong ones, uh, stay around for a while. But if you've been looking at them and seen them, they are much weaker. You have to remember that. They will tell you nothing's changed you remember that Mary Oliver line where she said, the old voices kept offering their bad advice? They will do that. They are doing that. They have done that. And so to uh, be patient, that's where that mindfulness of the old patterns is so important that we can actually really study them with the aim of noticing them as soon as possible that is something that we are in a position to do in the next period of time. Really important is if one of the old voices appears, be extremely careful of shooting the second arrow. Right? This has appeared, oh gosh. Then we can easily shoot the second arrow, meaning something is difficult and we Blame ourselves, judge ourselves, blame others. We shoot the second arrow. So, watching for any shootings of second arrows. Very good next week. <laughs> uh, today. <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. Then the other piece you know, that comes with the return is what Heather mentioned. It's this way that we've moved from the ordinary to the extraordinary, and now, in a sense, we're entering the ordinary again, but with it becoming more the extraordinary ordinary. Did you feel the talking today was in a way extraordinary ordinary? It was, I could tell. <laughs> and that not that interesting, that the talking just had a different quality maybe, at times, you yeah. know? You know, I thought that uh, Heather, when she was mentioning that, was going to give this classical Zen saying. So I thought I would give it since since she did not. Do you remember the one about, uh, Before I had practiced, I saw mountains as mountains, and rivers as rivers. When I arrived at more intimate knowledge, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains, and rivers are not rivers. But now that I have got its very substance, I am at rest for it's just now that i see that mountains are once again mountains and rivers are once again r- again rivers so there's a another kind of archetype there's the archetype of the return And there's also another archetype that can hold us as we move more into the world. And that's the archetype of one who is deeply committed to inner awakening and expressing that in one's own way in the world. You know, it's a vision that is there in all traditions. It's there with the shaman who seeks visions and then comes back with the vision and the song to the community. It's there with the uh, Jewish prophets who act to serve others, to bring about justice, to live a sacred life. as a fundamental direction and to be following what's called tikkun olam, the repair of the world. We can see something very similar in Islam, also with the the same and similar notion of the prophet. You know, we see it in the life of Jesus. This is from uh, Andrew Harvey. He says, The life and work of Jesus combines the deepest mystical absorption in the divine with the most absolute and selfless work for justice and compassion in the world. We can see it in contemporary lives like those of uh, Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or Aung San Suu Kyi or Dorothy Day. So it's this beautiful archetype, you know, and in the Buddhist tradition we have uh, a version of it which is the understanding of the Bodhisattva. The bodhi meaning awakening and sattva mean, meaning being. Bodhisattva in Pali, the awakening being. It's actually what the Buddha was called in the uh, text before his awakening. And it's, it's the Bodhisattva is someone who has deep insight, who knows, as we would say, the three characteristics knows impermanence, knows the roots of suffering, the roots of freedom, knows the nature of self and has gone beyond in many ways that thick self that that I was referring to. And is acquainted with the inner practice but also is dedicated to helping others has both this inner and this outer focus. And I think it's, it's an archetype which is very important in our times. Very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. I think something like it is actually needed in our times to meet the, uh, the great need of our times. You know, if we think of the very, very compelling large needs yeah. of finding a sustainable way to live and really somehow summoning the energy to um, work with climate disruption, or ending racism or any of the other large systemic issues. I think we need people who have the uh, qualities of spiritual practice and maybe have you know, a fair amount of time devoted to inner practice, but then are offering their gifts in all sorts of ways to the world. Some may be directly facing those issues, others using their own gifts. You know? So I think there's really, uh, there are just many, many ways that transformation occurs, not just by being on the front lines, but by helping to change one's sense of things. Uh, Joanna Macy has a wonderful way of thinking about transformation. She says that the kind of large scale transformation that might occur has three aspects. One of them is uh, stopping uh, further damage from occurring. And that might be what a traditional activist does. And a second is changing our basic institutions. Which might mean bringing, you know, it's happening, people bringing mindfulness to education, or to medical care, or to um, working in communities. And the third is changing consciousness. And I think the contemporary bodhisattva uh, finds one's place, finds the, the bodhisattva finds the, the appropriate place where one is called in all these ways. So it could be one could be a yoga teacher, one could be working in a hospital. What I really love is there's a great uh, uh, guidance that came from uh, Howard Thurman. Some of you may know Howard Thurman was a a great uh, African-American mystic who I think died about 1980 and was for a long time taught at Howard, taught at Boston University, and came out to San Francisco. and set up one of the first really explicitly interracial churches in San Francisco. And he was uh, both a mystic and an activist. And around 1970, I think the story is, um, a young man came to see him and said, I don't know what to do with my life. What should I do? And you would think that Howard Thurman, one might think Howard Thurman would say, well, we really need people with this project, (laughs) right? Or, here's where we really have great need for this cause. And he didn't say that. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Huh? (laughs) Don't ask what the world needs, but rather ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs are people who have come alive. That's the Bodhisattva, I think. Traditionally, the bodhisattva worked with um, intentions and vows. Here's a traditional one from the fifth century, from the Theravada tradition. The bodhisattva is in all of the Buddhist traditions. Crossed, I would cross others. Freed, I would free others. Tamed, I would tame others. Calmed, I would calm others. Comforted, I would comfort others. Attained to Nibbana, I would lead others to Nibbana. Purified, I would purify others. Enlightened, I would enlighten others. Oh, may I awaken to supreme perfect awakening and bring well-being and happiness to all beings. It's called the Great Aspiration. This is from the Zen tradition. Living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. So the bodhisattva goes through a training. A lot of the training looks like what we've been doing. It's a training traditionally in the paramis. The perfection, sometimes translated, or the virtues, generosity, sila or ethics, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, equanimity. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Trains in these qualities as they manifest in an inner way and also in an outer way. And I was thinking also, there's almost like a contemporary training for uh, bodhisattvas now that adds a few other pieces. And one of my interests has been, over the years, has been to develop training programs for people connecting inner and outer work. Uh, which I've done in a few different venues with a number of uh, friends and colleagues. And we have found, uh, for example, the contemporary bodhisattva needs to develop also, not always na- not named traditionally, skillful communication. Skill in working with conflict. Awareness of what we, we, we call different aspects of diversity. Really knowing internally and externally, gender, race, sexual orientation, class, religion, age, how these uh, manifest oppressively, how to work with that, internally and externally. Contemporary bodhisattva might also study leadership and how to develop communities, how to work in groups, how to act in different ways, awareness of the larger social systems and so forth. And so in all of this, the, um, the bodhisattva brings together the inner and the outer. It's not easy, right? It's not easy to do that. But I think that's really the invitation where each, as we go into our, our lives, we're, we're looking as to how to do that. How to keep the quality of awareness, how to keep the quality of freedom, of being able to respond when there is reactivity, know the appropriate response, increasingly not just in the meditation but in the flow of daily life where things, as we know, are getting, you know, compared to our last month or two months, more complex, more fast-moving, interpersonal. Yipes! It's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> and so we, we, we practice there. The bodhisattva is committed to that, is committed to working with that. The last area I want to talk about is almost like the um, the day-to-day daily practices, kind of on a micro-level for us as we connect the inner and the outer. Whether we resonate with the notion of the bodhisattva we want, uh, we want that unity of our practice. We want our practice and our life to be one, to, again, to use the uh, words of, of, of Shabkar. And so I want to talk about sort of three levels of daily life practice. A lot of us are familiar, I think, especially with the first two. I'm calling the first foundational, um, the second uh, intermediate, and the third advanced. <laughs> okay. And I'll f- I won't spend too much time on the foundational cuz uh, but if the foundational isn't there so fully then stay there. <laughs> okay. So the foundational practices are well known. We they're often mentioned at the end of most retreats. They are to have a daily practice, to find that protected time and space for one's own practice, to have a a, a general sense of the framework of practice, to have some understanding of the aims of practice, to know some of the basic teachings, to make a deeper commitment to living ethically, to following the precepts to working with the precepts. And I should say that my uh, distinction between foundational, intermediate, and advanced is somewhat arbitrary, that all of these actually have themselves, we might say, have intermediate, or have have foundational, intermediate, and advanced aspects. Living ethically can be a deeply advanced practice, right? You know. and so, but, but that basic grounding in ethics is something that often is, is foundational. Being part of a community, being connected with a group so that we have support, also very crucial foundational, foundationally. And then taking regular retreats. Again, this is well known. One practice I th- that I recommend to people, and many, many people do, is always knowing the date of your next retreat. It actually, it, it sounds a little bit uh, flip, maybe, but it actually does something to the psyche. You know, it knows that I am prioritizing, I know that I am prioritizing this aspect of my life. And I have, and you know, in a sense, have, uh, have acted, have made a commitment. Okay, ready for intermediate practice? Done with foundational practice? Okay, so a few things for the intermediate level. Um... I think as we continue practicing, we start to have, I would say, a more differentiated set of practices. We might not just do mindfulness practice, but we might have a sense of the interplay of mindfulness and metta and how they tend to inform each other and in their maturity tend to really uh, integrate or interpenetrate each other. We may also take on some of the other heart practices to have forgiveness practice as part of one's repertoire. Very, very helpful. You know, I use forgiveness practice in daily life a lot. If something has happened where I've done something unskillful or someone else has, just on the smallest level, I find it incredibly helpful. If I find, you know, could be driving. Some of you will be driving tomorrow. Remember driving? <laughs> Remember unskillful drivers. <laughs> and so someone cuts you off you know, after you know, having proper safety considerations. Some forgiveness practice can be helpful rather than going immediately to the horn. You know, or if there's been something difficult that's happened interpersonally. It can be wonderful. So to have this repertoire, the heart practices, mindfulness, maybe uh, other ways to inquire, bringing in some of that investigation inquiry. For some of us it may be also to bring in psychological work and to integrate that with the, the um, mindfulness, the metta, to connect. For, again, for some of us, as I mentioned the other night, it might be to do some sustained work with trauma, if that's there in one's in one system. We also bring our practice more and more explicitly into our relationships, into our work. We find ways to make that happen, right? We find ways to bring mindfulness into our, our work. We find these, these small ways, you know. I, I think of uh, people I work with, or one person says, well, I just have a routine. When I get to work, I have a 10-minute walk, and I just always make it walking meditation. You know, or I, I just find these multiple ways that it's not like, oh, I'm practicing when I'm on the cushion and the rest of the time, who knows, <laughs> right? And so this is, this is a certain level of maturity where we, where, we, where we look to have that wholeness, where we look to develop that. And there's a lot we could say, you know? and I'll talk a little bit later about some particular methods, and I'm sure we each have our own. And my sense is that maybe in a short time, 10, 20, 30 years, we'll have this great compendium of all sorts of ways to make daily life practice work. You know, some people do it with the technology. You know, have apps which you know, one lets 30 other people know that you've just practiced. Right? It connects. It can be helpful. Right? There, you know, and maybe some of you will invent new apps. There's also, I think, you know, I'm calling this an intermediate level, but there's a time when one actually starts to look more carefully at what are my priorities? How am I spending my time? How am I living my life? Not always an easy question, right? And how is my life conducive to my practice, you know, in all senses of that, inner, outer, Are there changes I want to make? Am I really living according to my deeper values? Not always easy. A certain percentage of discussions I have just in working with people are around people wanting to align more or the anguish of feeling sometimes I'm not in alignment. How do I shift that? This is from uh, the Persian poet Hafiz. We have not come here to take prisoners but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. Working with intention, also a very powerful practice. We've worked with intention a lot here at this retreat. Bringing that into daily life is an incredible practice where we can set an intention for a meeting I intend to stay in my body some during this meeting. Could be that. Could be I intend to track for reactivity because I know this is going to be a difficult discussion. Something like that. To set intentions like that or I will try to bring as much careful listening into this uh, conversation as I can. To work with intentions that way. Very, very crucial. And we could say so much about that. It goes... Um, such a long way to um, kind of bridge the inner work with being active. So working with intention. A huge practice is actually uh, being open to working with difficulties. And actually, at a certain point, when we actually are interested in difficulties and challenges, our practice accelerates. So you can be interested. Oh, a difficulty. Oh, something hard, something a little painful. Wow. Another chance to learn. I'm not sure I'm hearing immediate <laughs> resonance with that <laughs> with that uh, guide. There's a, there's a nice line from um, a t- it's kind of a Tibetan um, proverb when the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. (laughs) (laughs) But when faced with trouble, my faults are exposed. Mm. And so, taking those, taking challenges, actually having a different attitude to challenge, it changes everything. Of course, they have to be more or less kind of in the workable range. There are challenges which are just overwhelming. And that's, I think I'm talking more about challenges that are in the workable range. Hard, difficult, but, but workable. Another, another line from Tibetan tradition from the Lojong teachings, turn or take all obstacles as the path of practice take all obstacles as the path of practice. And the Buddha was always uh, talking, I think uh, John talked about this last night, about the value at times of being tested. Again, this is really more to have some sense of, oh, there's a challenge, and rather than just say, oh, heck. (laughs) But to actually have some part of you say, something to learn, something to explore. This is the Buddha. Some practitioner is extremely kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch that person. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch that person that it can be understood whether the practitioner is really kind, gentle and peaceful. Mm. One practice that I've really uh, loved, I've I've done it for maybe, I think I learned about 25 years ago. Um, It's a practice of taking a difference of views as a starting point for inquiry rather than as a starting point for war. Have a difference of views between people. Take it as inquiry, meaning, oh, why do I have this reaction right now towards this other person's view? Might I learn something? Well, you know, let me look. Is there something in my past that predisposes me to be reactive with this particular view. And to take that as a regular practice when there are differences. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Then maybe I'll name one last sort of intermediate type of practice, which is to, some, at a certain point, we can really be supported by mentors or can sometimes be groups of peers. But basically, finding more support in our practice can be very, very crucial at a certain point. We need a lot of support, and I think we need a lot of external support. It's not just, I'm going to do it myself and have this discipline and do my practice. And I think the support from others makes a huge difference. Call it community, call it you know teachers, whatever. Okay. Advanced practice. Ready? Okay. What do you think I'm going to talk about here? Okay. Uh, I'll just mention a few. Um, again, the, a little bit arbitrary where I classify this. I think taking speech as an ongoing practice beca- can become very important at a certain point. Some of us complain about only having 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes a day for practice. Guess what happens if all of your speaking becomes practice? Some of us have 5 or 10 hours a day of dedicated spiritual practice. Not so easy. More complicated, fast-moving. It's possible. Possible to have one's speech be more and more practiced. And there's a lot I could say about that. And my favorite way of talking about it is to take seven days for a retreat and talk about it. (laughs) Okay, a second that's really crucial, we've mentioned a lot, especially, I think, the practice of grounding in the body may be the most important practice we can do to sustain continuity of practice in daily life. It may be the most important thing to do. So anything which helps us ground further in the body will support our practice. It will take us out of the automatic mind, basically. Have you felt the automatic mind come back? or Maybe coming back is the wrong word. Make a stronger appearance. Yeah. And so the body, crucial, so anything like uh, body practice, qigong, yoga, walking meditation regularly, Small ways of being with the body, you know, being in a meeting, keeping your hands on your knees, having a light sense of the body. Um, Yeah. Uh, Just in very small ways, uh, coming back to the body. Another practice which has been important for me is taking a Sabbath day once a week. You know, I, I think I've done that most of the last 35 years. Had a day, a week... Sometimes a whole day, sometimes a half day. Some people I work with, it's three or four hours. It becomes, and this is in the ancient tradition, East and West, it becomes the pivot of the week. Now I'm not saying, I should just clarify, I'm not saying do all of these. Just find two or three that resonate with you of what I've named, okay? Just to be clear, I'm not saying, okay. For your next assignment, you will take on these 23 different practices I've, I've named so far. So really just to see, to hear which of these, t- what two or three or maybe just one resonate with me. Something which I've been interested in lately because I've really, a lot of my own personal retreats of the last few years, I've come out of the retreat saying a major cutting edge for me is having my daily life approach the level of retreat practice. How do I do that? And one practice which I've been especially interested in is finding small ways during the day of having five minutes here, ten minutes here for practice. You know, so for example, I have a knee exercise which I do which has me uh, basically sitting up upright with my legs extended and just putting pressure on my knee and then some ice on my knee. And it's eight minutes long. It's ritualized because I'm supposed to do it every day, it becomes practice time. I think I probably have four or five or six times a day when I have, you know, like five to 10 minutes of practice during the day. Y- you might, d- and it really helps if it's ritualized. So it could be if you're having a meal by yourself, do 10 or 15 minutes of metta during the meal, or mindfulness of eating, or take a walk after a meal, or, um, you know, um, Do a little ritual when you wake up. Many of you do that. Do something where you stay with your breath for a minute or two when you wake up. Have a few rituals that take you back to practice during the day. So let me invite you now. I'm going to close with uh, really just two things. One is to invite you right now after this uh, exploration and inquiry, just go inside for yourself. What one or two, maybe three, what one or two or three intentions or practices are most important for you as you return to your daily lives? And my, my suggestion is to keep whatever you came up with close to your heart just now. So two short readings to, to finish. One is about that balance of the inner practice and the outer practice expressed, expressed through an image. This is from uh, a Zen teacher named Odo Sesho Roshi who is actually uh, Gary Snyder, the poet Gary Snyder's Zen teacher. Japanese uh, teacher. He said, in Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. Get it? <laughs> so, I love that. And then, just to finish with um, um Walt Whitman, great poet from the 19th century. This is what you should do, he says. This is what you should do. Love the earth and sun and animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God or the Dharma. Little addition there. <laughs> <laughs> have patience and indulgence towards the people. Re-examine all you have been told in school or church or in any book. Dismiss what insults your very soul, and your flesh shall become a great poem. And have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. So may we uh, go forth uh, with this uh, shared practice of connecting this deep inner work with how we are in the world. May we go forth, may we uh, stay in touch, may we compare notes, uh, because this is really our shared practice that we're all doing together. And we're doing it in a way that has never been done before in the world at this time in the kind of lives we're leading. So it's, uh, there's amazing creativity that's uh, invited may we may we do it together thank you thank you for listening